Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. I'm going to invite Pastor Josh O'Donnell to come up. Uh, what was pretty neat, uh, Josh, this was your first missions conference to actually be a part of promoting a ministry you're pioneering called Renew Alaska. Yeah, that yeah. Was, that it was, was really, awesome. It was really great. And uh, I don't know if everybody here understands what Renew Alaska is, but if you want to take a minute and fill them in, I, I think that would be yeah. good. Yeah, okay. thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. <clears throat> yeah, we, um, we uh, launched um, <clears throat> July of 2021, sometime in there. Um, and basically, we do renewal and restoration work with um, pastoral leaders, ministry leaders, really Christian leaders. Actually, we work with uh, nonprofits and business, uh, Christian business leaders. And um, our, our only job is to come alongside them. We aren't the answer. We just guide them back into the answer and away from the weariness that a lot of um, any time you're in ministry or, or really getting after things, especially in faith, uh, there's a lot of opposition, a lot of discouragement that comes. And so our ministry is just to walk through um, about three months worth of meeting with, with these leaders one-on-one for about 90 minutes a week. And we just guide them back into the presence of Jesus. And I, I know it sounds crazy to think that people in ministry get off track from that sometimes, but man, like we all know, you live long enough and you bleed. And so, um, so that's really what we do. And, and we don't charge to do what we do. And, and it's something that, that I walked through with someone a few years ago and it, it radically altered my life. And so my commitment was, hey, freely I've been given, freely I give away. So uh, Church on the Rock brought me on this year as a missionary, and it was just incredible. I mean, absolutely incredible to get to um, be, be in the presence of so many giants of the faith and hearing and being encouraged by the steps in their ministries that they've taken and the same kind of following in those tracks into the unknown and watching God provide along the way. And so, yeah, um, and man, Palmer, you guys just rocked it for the banquet. Man, it was awesome. And Chris is right, it was packed. I mean, it was packed in here. We're going to have some problem solving to do next year. But yeah, thank you. Um, thank you, Church on the Rock, even for your support. And um, man, it's, it's a blessing to get to get to be here with you guys every time. Uh, we are this morning. Um, man, I just got to take a second. That song wrecked me. I mean, that song wrecked me. So um, let me just take a second. Lord, um, Father, I ask you, God, that that song would be the song of our hearts. Lord, as we, as we read through a story today of, of a woman who uh, lost sight, Lord, and, and fell into despair, uh, God, I, I ask you, Father, that, that as this undoubtedly became the song of her heart, Lord, it would be the song of our hearts as we leave here this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. We're in the book of Ruth. Uh, we're kicking off this uh, book. And, and um, if you've been with us, we've got through the book of Judges. And, and Judges is a very intense book. Um, and if you, ha- if, you've, if you haven't been here, you're new here and you haven't heard, you can go back on the website and listen to the series through Judges. But it's a really dark time for Israel. And, and one, of the, one of the key themes coming out of that is that everyone was doing right in their own eyes. Or so it would seem. Chapter 1 of the book of Ruth records how a famine in Judah motivated Limelech and his wife Naomi to leave Israel and move to Moab. Now remember, Moab is the place where they came from 
where they're standing across waiting to enter into the promised land. And now they're in a position and a situation where a famine hits the land that they were promised. And now they move back out to Moab where they never were meant to be. And it's interesting that he moves his wife um, and, and two sons out there to save their lives. And yet they ended up dying, the, the husband and the two sons. And, and so she's left in this, this uh, land, and, and their two sons, they move out there, and they marry Moabite women. And eventually, after her sons died, about a decade later, the, her sons, she has no grandchildren, they had no children, and she's left with her daughters-in-law. Um, and so she, after a while, she says, look, you girls, go back to your parents. This is your land. Go back to your gods. Go back to your parents. God has dealt bitter with me, and I want you to have nothing to do with this. She's, she's left alone. She's in a dark place in her life. In fact, Ruth 1.16 says, as, as she's releasing her daughters, one of them, Ruth, comes back and, and tells Naomi, he, she says, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God be my God. And you can see on the map here, where Moab is in, in comparison to Judah and Bethlehem, where, uh, where Naomi is from. Now, before we dig in, we need to ask ourselves, does any of this have to do with us? I mean, it's just a story about a famine, which isn't uncommon in the Middle East. Uh, a couple widowed women in the Old Testament, some tragedy, working in fields. Like, this is pretty common stuff for that time. So how can that have any bearing on us 3,000 years later in Palmer, Alaska? And I would submit to you that it's because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we're going to see how the same God, he's not a God of Old Testament judgment. He's not a harsh God that is looking to, to, to uh, uh, embitter his children, but he's looking to continually pour out mercy and grace on them. But his people have gone astray. In the time of Judges, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, especially the leaders. And like so many stories in Scripture, there always seems to be a remnant in the midst of evil who are committed to honoring God. And God uses that. And that's what we discover in Ruth. We see in chapter 1 that it's one blow after another, which leads Naomi to say in verses 13 and verse 20 of chapter 1, he says, the hand, she says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Have you ever felt that way? If we were honest, I have. I felt like, man, there's been seasons I'm like, Lord, what is going on? I feel like the world is caving in and crushing and she's left alone after in this foreign land away from her people with no security, no companions, daughters that are Moabite women, so they shouldn't have ever been married into that family in the first place, no financial provision, no grandchildren, she's left vulnerable to a very dark culture, she's got nothing. In fact, she was so oppressed by God's bitter provision in her life that she actually can't even see any of the signs of hope, even as they start to appear. I mean, Naomi knows there's a God. She knows he's almighty and sovereign. She knows he's Jehovah Jireh. I mean, she's familiar with all these things. She's also very aware that he rules on the national uh, and personal dealings of humanity. But she fails to see his love for her personally. 
Isn't this our experience often as well? We can look at what God's doing in others' lives. We look at what he's doing in other arenas and answering prayers for others and, and, and guiding others and speaking to others. But for us, it seems like he's just left us alone in a foreign land where once he was our God and now he's, he's nowhere to be found. It's not uncommon that we all go through this in our faith at one point in our life. And she knows that he's dealt bitterly with her. It's, and, and to be fair, her life is incredibly tragic. She began to look through God, at God, through the, the life, uh, the lens of bitterness. Stephen Covey says in his book, Seven Habits for Highly Effective People, he says, each of us tends to think that, w- that we, see the thing, we see things as they are, believing that we're being objective. But this is not the case. We see the world not as it is, but as we are. It's so often true in our faith. And I would say it's even we see the world as we've been conditioned to see it. Our expectations, our assumptions about things. And we're convinced that what we see is actually happening. This is what's happening with Naomi. She's saying, God has left me. In fact, my daughter-in-laws, you guys go back to your gods and your parents because I don't even want you dealing with the way or having effects of the way God is dealing with me. And then Ruth is persistent on coming with her. Whether we recognize it or not, most of us have this chasm between what we believe to be true about God and what we're experiencing daily. That there's always a chasm, and we don't like to talk about it. We don't even really like to think about it. But but the way our life and our the, the posture and the attitudes of our hearts, it's not very long before we begin to realize, for example, that perfect love casts out fear. Yet we we deal with the fear in life. I mean, that's a chasm statement. We're told, God says, no, perfect love, my love casts out fear. And we're going, yeah, but my life's riddled with fear. Why is it still a major factor? Same could be said about anxiety or impatience, anger. I mean, we read that we're adopted sons and daughters, but so often our experience leads us to assume that we're actually living as orphans, much like Naomi must have felt. Like, Lord, we were your people. We're not even living like the rest of your people are, Lord. And yet you have left me abandoned in a foreign land. And there's a chasm that began to be created between what she believed at one time to be true about God and what she was experiencing. And that chasm creates these lenses that we begin to look through everything with. And most of the time, it's bitterness stemming from hurt. And this leads to leads to a lot of dysfunctional life choices we make. Like Naomi telling her daughters that it'd be better for them to go back to their gods than to continue pursuing the God of Jacob. At some point in life, everyone bleeds and everyone breaks. Everyone experiences what Naomi is actually currently working through with God. And I want us to be compassionate and feel the weight of what Naomi's going through. Like, we have had tragedy strike our lives. If you haven't yet, you will. And it's a very real part of life. But what she's forgotten, then, on all the bitter experience of those that God calls his own, he's working out the glory for their good. But we can't see it if we have the lens of questioning whether God is good or not. 
If God meets our expectations, then he's good. If he fails our expectations, then we question, say, hey, I can't verbally question, but Lord, I'm really struggling here like Naomi. This might be the most difficult truth we face in this life. When your friend or family member dies, when you're left wondering what to do next, when you see or experience suffering firsthand, when God has seemed to be silent for too long, when the sick aren't healed, when oppressors are set free, when injustice seems to be the standard of society, it goes on and on and this stuff wanes on us and it grows us weary And we can't escape it because it's the broken world we live in. And so we must ask ourselves this question honestly. That in the depth of pain and despair, do I still believe in the goodness of God towards me personally? It's easy to believe in that for others because we always see God working around us and in others. But do we believe that God is for me personally? That he's working good for me personally? And if we would believe and remember that God is for us, that his love never fails us, that we are adopted sons and and daughters of God, of a good and perfect father, that, that we are adopted, we are not left as orphans, but we are in the almighty wings of God, the Father. Then perhaps we would see beyond the lenses like Naomi was was seeing, and we would see that hey, maybe there's some maybe there's some light at the end of this that I'm starting to see. This brings us to provision in the setback. So, question that both providence and bitterness comes to Naomi. I mean, you could read chapter one of Ruth and be like, "Yeah, that's rough. That is that's a rough rough time she's going through." But providence begins to to come when God lifts the famine in Judah and and opens a way for Naomi to go back home. And at this point, she's like, praise God, thank you. No, actually, she's not because she's so wounded. She even comes back. And and at the end of of chapter 1, verse 21, she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has afflicted me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. What she didn't see, though, is that he already gave her an amazingly devoted and loving daughter-in-law to accompany her. He preserves a kinsman of Naomi's husband who will someday marry Ruth and preserve Naomi's line. But Naomi sees none of this, and understandably, the pain is too much for her to see. So Ruth and, and the embittered and wounded Naomi set back in Judah and try to settle back into her homeland, but it will never be the same again. As we'll see in chapter 2, the mercy of God becomes so obvious and apparent that even Naomi begins to get a little glimpse of maybe the lens she's been looking through isn't accurate. So let's read chapter 2 briefly. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out, went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come across, or come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was one of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. 
Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose, woman, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men uh, to not touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And now you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and do not pull out some from the bundle, or and also pull out some from the bundles and for her, and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And so she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with, these, with his young women, lest another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, uh, the, to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. I mean, Boaz is the man, a man of deep character, a man who could have taken advantage of a vulnerable Moabite woman, but saw a woman who needed the protection that he offered, a place of refuge. We see characters here that, that, is, that is seldom evident in our culture. And for the person reading this story for the first time, like Boaz is a bright fracture in the, in the gloomy clouds of bitterness hanging over Naomi. Like, finally, Lord, finally we're returning and finally you're showing me a glimpse of hope here. And we immediately realize that things aren't actually as bleak as Naomi described them in chapter 1. Again, because the lens she was looking through was not accurate to what God was doing. We read that Boaz is actually a relative of Elimelech, which, which makes him um, um, 
qualified to carry on the line. In fact, it was, it was in the law that a surviving brother was to marry his deceased brother's wives who had no children in order to bear a son to continue the deceased brother's family line. You can read that in Deuteronomy 25. His name means in him is strength. And more importantly, he was a man that was saturated with God. For example, verse 1 says he's a man of worth. Literally, that word means a man of valor. But more important than that, verse 4 shows that he's a man of God. He even, he even comes to his servants. Notice how the author records this. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they obviously appreciated his leadership because they said, the Lord bless you. If you want to know a man's relation to God, you need to find out how far God has saturated his life and the details of his everyday life. His farming business, his relationship to his employees, everything was enriched with the things of God. And we see this in him because he didn't take advantage of a foreign woman. We got to remember that Israel's history was that their viewpoint of the Moabite women, which they were very promiscuous women, their whole history with them is, hey, we go to them because they're basically prostitutes. They, they are partiers, they, they, are, they, have, they have horrible practices with their gods, and they are, they are easy women. And he could have, had he been like all the other men in the culture at that time, he could, doing what was right in his own eyes, doing, doing what, the, the, the acts of Samson, if you will, he could have gone and taken advantage, but we see the, the amazing godly character of a man who expresses the heart of God towards his people. It's incredible. But I want to look, take a look at Ruth for a second. She was a woman of character. First, we see her initiative to care for her mother-in-law. And, and in verse 2, Naomi doesn't command Ruth to go look for food. Ruth volunteers. I mean, are you, are you, are you beginning to think of a, of a woman like this that you know in your life? Where you're like, man, this, is, this, is, this type of woman is a type to always be volunteering to care for others. Even at the cost of her own comfort. She said, let me go to the field and glean along the ears of grain. She's committed herself to Naomi. In fact, she even said in chapter one that, that if I were to ever go back on my word, may I die. So she was like, Naomi, I am staying with you. No matter how stubborn you think you are, I'm more stubborn. I'm gonna follow you back and your God will be my God. But Ruth is also a woman of incredible humility. She's not presumptuous, but she does take initiative. In verse 7, the servants report to Boaz how she had approached them that morning. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. She doesn't demand a handout. She doesn't come up entitled with this sob story, pulling the name card, dropping names like, well, you know, Elimelech, Boaz, your boss. Let me have a corner of this field. She doesn't. She comes with a sense of humility and brokenness. All she wants to do is gather up the leftovers. And in fact, in Matthew 15, 27, a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and says, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. 
And what does Jesus say in verse 28? He says, then Jesus answered her, oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. See, then the, the, the um, field owners and the, the harvesters were not allowed to glean and harvest from around the, the borders of their field. They had to leave the edges alone. And this is where the poor people would come in. It was a command of theirs that the poor people would be allowed to get gather up all the stuff along the edges. And so Ruth comes in instead of entitlement, she comes and says, let me just be one of the poor people. Let me be one of the servants and I'll go to the outer fields to glean. We see this beautiful, beautiful character of a woman coming out. There's no doubt that the writer wants us to admire Ruth. She takes initiative to care for her downcast mother-in-law, and it couldn't have been an easy job if you've ever been around an embittered woman. (laughs) Or an embittered man, actually. (laughs) But she's humble and she's meek and doesn't put herself forward improperly at all. But before we leave verses 1 through 7 in chapter 2, we begin to see this merciful providence behind all this. Verse 3, she says, So she set forth and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. So she just happened to come, right? Like she just happened to be in this field. Like, like you guys believe in coincidences? Like I do, I just believe they increase with God's sovereignty. And what's happening here is that she was there because God's gracious and sovereign, even in his silence. And if you're ever in a situation where you feel like God's silence, trust him that he is still sovereign, that he's still working in the midst of that. As Proverbs 16, 9 says, a man plans his ways and the Lord directs his steps. And then, and then in verse 8 and 9, Boaz approaches Ruth and shows her incredible kindness. Even though she's, she's a foreigner, I mean, she's got two strikes against her. And he still provides food for her. In fact, he goes above and beyond. He offers protection. He sees a vulnerable woman and says, no one's to touch this young lady. And I want you to follow my other women and, and, have, and, and go along with them. They'll show you the ropes. In fact, he even says, any water you want, my guys, any water they, they dig up, you can have that. You have access to that. He went above and beyond in his generosity because he had the heart of God in him. So all of Boaz's wealth and godliness begin to turn for the blessing of Ruth and Naomi. Now we come to perhaps the most significant exchange in these chapters, verses 10 through 13. Ruth raises a question which actually turns out to be very profound. It's one that we actually all need to ask God, and hardly anything in our life is going to be more important than this question. Verse 10 says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? She doesn't expect any special treatment. She's a foreign woman, a Moabite, which they're, they're commanded to not be, not be interacting with already. And yet, his response to her is generosity and kindness. And she has a genuine amazement at this. And this is where we see more of her character. See, she's very different than most people we would, or many people we would meet today. We expect kindness and become resentful if we don't get our rights. But she doesn't have an ounce of this entitlement. 
She, she expresses her sense of unworthiness by falling on her face and bowing to the ground. She wasn't worshiping him. She was expressing a, a submission and humility of saying, I know I don't deserve to be here, but would you show me favor? Would you show me grace? And see, humble people are made even more humble by be, being treated graciously. Do, do you ever get that? Like when you meet a humble person and you're gracious with them, it just, it just promotes more humility in them and more kindness and compassion in them. But the more you show a proud person, the more they're entitled and they expect it and they begin demanding it. And favor is not intended to lift us out of lowliness. It's intended to make us delighted in God. And then verse 11 and 12 are absolutely crucial says, but Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Again, we see Boaz deflecting the glory to God. He could have said, yes, I'm Boaz. This is all mine. You may serve me. No. He says, I see what you've done. People have told me what you've done. And, and this is the character of our God. This isn't the character of your gods. This is the character of our gods. And I see what you've done. And he doesn't say, I will bless you for this. He says, actually, the Lord will bless you for this. But why? Is there an exchange? Does he want us to think of like grace as kind of this kindness we earn? I don't, I don't think that's it at all, actually, because if Ruth had earned the favor of Boaz, then we kind of have to have this employee-employer relationship, like, well, he owes her this stuff. I mean, if she's, if she's working for him, then, then she, he owes her this stuff. But this isn't the image that, that we're told um, through this story. In fact, Boaz knew the Lord well enough to know what pleased him. In verse 12, he says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz admits that it's really God rewarding her. He's only the instrument of God. And this picture that he gives, this picture of, of God as this great winged eagle and, and Ruth is this, this vulnerable bird who's come to find, find refuge under the wings of an eagle and we are not unfamiliar with eagles up here. I mean, we see eagles, but then we see eagles up here and they still astonish us when you see their wingspans and, and their, their alpha dominance of all of the, the birds of the air and the fish fear them. I mean, they are the dominant alphas. And this is, this is, this is Ruth coming in and, and be like, will you protect me? Not, you better protect me. I'm kind of related to you. But she comes and she, she says, I, I just need to take refuge under. And this is a, this is a posture of lowliness, of humility, of, of surrender. And Boaz recognizes this, not under his wings, but he gives credit to God. He says, you have come to take refuge under the mighty wings of God. This is a beautiful, beautiful exchange here. Psalm 57, 1 says, be merciful to me. 
O God, be merciful to me, for in thee my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of thy wings I will take refuge. Notice the word for. He says, be merciful, be merciful to me for in thee, because in you I take refuge, God. So be merciful. And we all need mercy at times, do we not? We all need God's wings to take refuge under. And what we see here is this dependence on the Lord, this surrender, this correct posture of our hearts to come before God and say, God, we have just come from a hard season. I've lost my spouse. I've lost my land. I've left my foreign, my, I've left my land, my, what's familiar, what's comfortable. I'm moving into this place of, of, of unknown, Lord, and I need help. I need you, God. And there's two very distinct paths that people take. It's the entitled path of, well, I'm going to do it. Forget you, God, because you let me down. You took my spouse away. You took my prosperity away. Forget you. I'm going to do this on my own. And we become entitled and embittered. And then there's the person who's, who is broken and, and filled with pain and says, Lord, I have nowhere else to go but under your mighty wings. So God showed favor to Ruth because she had sought refuge under his wings. When a person does this, God, God's honor is at stake. You guys remember Moses when he's talking to God. It's, this exchange has always been interesting to me. And, and he's like, you know, Lord, you can't really destroy us because your reputation is on the line. Like the world is going to look at you and mock you if you destroy your people. And we're told that God changed his mind. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. I'm not going to do that. Because they took refuge under his wings. And God's, when God's reputation is on the line, he will always be about his glory. And his reputation is that of an eagle's wing in whom we take refuge in whom we find ourselves in surrender to. Leaving home and loving Naomi was the result and evidence of taking refuge in God. Ruth didn't tell Naomi, I'll go back to your land with you and I'll be with you, but I'm still going to have my God. She says, your God will be my God. Here's a woman who saw no evidence of the goodness of, of Naomi's God, Naomi is questioning and being filled with this bitterness and wondering, where is, the, where is God? What is he doing? And Ruth saw beyond that, and she saw something greater. She was being called into the kingdom of God. And we ourselves have been called into the kingdom of God under the mighty wings of God. Our friends, our neighbors, some of them are being called into the mighty wings. And friends, the reality is, is that when we choose to walk bitterly before the Lord, his glory is not made much of. But when we say, hey, I don't know and I'm hurting and I'm in pain, but we're going to go under the mighty wings of God, God will come and he will show and he will be profoundly transformational in their lives. I get to watch it happen over and over and over with pastors I work with, over and over. And I, I feel like I get to sit on the, on, on, on the floor of the, the most epic 
kingdom game being played between, between people who have lost hope and are wondering what, where God is and all these things. And I get to just say, hey, let's keep, actually, let's keep going this way towards the Lord. I don't even need to, need to be their answer. I'm not their answer. It, it's when they're lacking strength, when they're lacking faith, I get to be the friend with faith and say, no, I, I have bled where you're bleeding and let's go this way because there's something great in the, under the wings of a mighty God. And we all have opportunity to do this. And this is the message of the gospel in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That God will have mercy on anyone from any nation who humbles himself like Ruth and take refuge under the wings of Jesus. Remember Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, Oh, Israel, I've longed to gather you under my wings. How I've longed, despite your hatred of me, despite your confusion, despite your religiosity, I have longed to gather you, to care for you, to protect you, but you have refused. But we don't see this heart in Naomi or in, in Ruth. So we want to be like Ruth. We want to have a sober perspective of ourselves that we can lay humbly before the Lord, bowing and understanding that it is under his wings that we find our refuge. But also have a sober perspective of God and his love that doesn't lead to our bitterness. I'll invite the worship team back up here. See, it was the Lord who stopped the famine. It was the Lord who bound Ruth to Naomi in devotion and love. It was the Lord who brought Boaz and Ruth together. It wasn't this random act of Ruth happened to stumble upon this field. God had already inlaid, and, and I love the term, God loves to flex for his children. I think of like my own boys, and I love to be the strongest, and my, my 12 going on 16-year-old is here, and he's getting strong, and I'm having to flex a little more often for him, and, but I want them to know like, man, dad's got you guys. Dad's got you guys. And God loves to flex for us. And if we remember that he's not against us, he's not, he's not looking to abandon us, but he's looking to bless us, but he's not looking to just give us easy lives. Because had Naomi not gone, gone through this, who knows what God, Ruth and her, 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 uh, Naomi's other daughter-in-law, would have served the rest of their lives. See, God orchestrates pain because he's the God of refuge. Of course he doesn't desire pain. That's not, that's not the, the way he designed creation. But because it's a broken world and, and redemption hasn't been fully made yet, that we experience pain in God and his sovereignty and his love for his people says, all right, I'm a mighty eagle with mighty wings because there's a broken world and you need refuge. And one day, friends, we won't need the refuge under his wings and he'll make everything new but we have these lives to live. And we have a God whose wings stretch further than we can see, whose who wings stretch as far as the east goes to the west, and he's inviting us to just come take refuge under those wings because he is a God of mercy. So the light of God's love finally has broken through. Bright enough for Naomi to see that the Lord is kind, that he's good that actually his goodness has been chasing her. So where do we take our refuge? If God calls you 
you really can leave family. You can leave your job. You can leave Alaska. You can make radical commitments and take on new ventures. Or, or maybe in the same way you can find courage and strength to keep a commitment you've already made to keep walking the path that you're on to trust the Lord in his provision. I mean, you really can. So as long as you go under the mighty wings of God, stay or go. God will direct that. But don't let fear, don't let bitterness, don't let pain of our past put a lens and say, nope, that chasm is too wide, God. I'm looking at you over there and there was a time that I trusted you. But over time and time, you, you let down my expectations and I don't know if I can trust you anymore. And I'm, be, I'm bittered and I'm fearful and I'm seeing everything being taken away and, and where are you? And it's because we're looking at the lens that God is not for us anymore. So come into his presence. Ask him to remove the lens in whatever chasm, whatever statements are on each side of that chasm. But it requires a posture of humility. And I promise that God will begin to crack open that gloom with the sun that, that always sits above it. And it might be a Boaz type of person. It might be a, a Boaz way of provision in your life, but he will do that. And if you're in that season right now where you're like, I don't even wanna be here. I, I don't even, man, I'm barely hanging on to my faith anyway. I've about had it with the way God's treated me. Hang on, don't give up. Maybe, maybe it's that you need to surrender and, and come into the Lord's presence and, and take, that, take the anger, take the bitterness to him and say, God, I'm, I'm, I don't know and I don't see the goodness. Give me some sign. And I promise you already, God is working out his glory in your life. When you believe in the sovereignty of God and his goodness, that he loves to work mightily for those who trust him, it gives freedom and joy that can't be shaken by difficult and tragic circumstances. And I don't stand up here as someone who hasn't bled in life. I've lost close people in my life. I've had some deep ministry wounds. I, I work with people all the time and hear stories of tragedies that would just, it, would, it turns your stomach. But I watch God break through every one of those as we just come under his wings. So Ruth, the first part, really teaches us that setbacks are just setups for those who take refuge under the mighty wings of God. I invite you to stand with us as we sing about God's goodness, actually. And as we sing this, I, I ask you if you're in a season where you're wondering if God is, is across a chasm for you, just spend time right now asking God to close that chasm, to bring some, some, some word of encouragement, some sign, something to, to let you know that he's not, not as distant as you think he is. And if you're not in that season, I know you have friends that are in that season. I said, just pray for them as well. And as we sing these lyrics, that's why they wrecked me so much because I spent this past week just submersed and entrenched in this idea that, man, God is good. God is good. And his goodness chases us even when we can't see it.
Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.